Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Jillian... Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Jillian Fleming about her study of the reign of the Spanish Queen Juana I, entitled Juana I, Legitimacy and Conflict in 16th Century Castile. Jillian, welcome to the show. Well, uh, thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I'm not. Um, I wouldn't. I'm not what you would call um, a classic uh, academic historian. I most of my career took place in the world of human rights, researching, um, and later I sort of went back to school, as it were, and um, and started to study history over again. And I became particularly interested in this subject. And so I went to King's College London and uh, the London School of Economics and Political Science, where I took my doctorate. What was it that led you to uh, Juana first and, uh, in, uh, as a topic in particular, this issue of legitimacy that is the focus of your book? Well, it, the, 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 there's a number of reasons. Um, I think in a way that the, the first thing that drew me to her was the very mythology surrounding her, that she, she had gone mad from love. Um, I'd gone through, many years ago, rather devastating personal loss. Um, I was also travelling around Castile at the time, and I first remember hearing her name when visiting the fortress of Segovia with friends. Um, at that time, she was only ever referred to as one of the mad and invariably portrayed as demented. And later I read a, um, a biography by the distinguished historian Manuel Fernandez Alvarez, which is highly popular, though I suspect little known outside Spain. And this piqued my curiosity further, uh, partly because it gave rise to so many questions, or, or there were more questions than they answered. And it struck me that Juana had been, as it were, imprisoned twice over in her own lifetime, but also by the historiography, which uh, had confirmed which had confined her to the mad woman's attic, as it were, and which tended to explain all her actions or motives by adopting an advanced position on her incapacity. So I became intrigued by the way in which this, um, through a smokescreen over the period and over the periodization by, by historians, um, Juana only governed for a very, very brief period and was in prison for most of her life. And so historians have tended to avoid referring to her period as sovereign queen as a reign. Um, so, you know, this, this presented a lot of challenges and, um, and I was interested in, more and more interested the, in looking further uh, at it. fascinating aspects about your book, and, I, and your book is really a very interesting examination of these, of, the, of these issues, is how you explain how, what the word mad meant in the 16th century. And I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit before we talk a bit more about Juana herself about how 
the word mad uh, could imply something different than how we sometimes nowadays assume it to be insane or crazy or, or, or some other uh, derogatory concept in that respect. Yes, well, the, that that's, um, description of madness did exist, uh, but there was so, it was used, the word locura, madness, was used to describe so many different things. I mean, there was a, a political disobedience, there was disobedience of women to their husbands, was often described as locura, uh, madness. And in Juana's case, it, it wasn't so much that she was called mad, although sometimes the word was used, uh, but indisposed. It was her indisposition that people um, talked about at the time. Later, madness crept in more and more. In the 18th century, there was an Augustinian monk who wrote about her Juana having gone mad from love. And this kind of stuck, and it, um, it, 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 it got even more vivid in the 19th century where the idea of... Of, of a queen who'd gone mad from love uh, became the what everybody now still sees her as, if you see what I mean. I do. It, it, and you point out how it plays into a lot of the uh, themes of romanticism it, it, and, it, and, it, and so much that how part of our understanding of it is influenced by that romantic take on madness out of passion and so forth. Yes. Um, and uh, I think in most people's minds, when they think about one of the mad, and they usually still refer to her as one of the mad, is um, in reference to the funeral cortege, which happened in 1507, 1507, 1506, 15, I should say, right at the end of 1506. And um, it, it, it's kind of seen as a, as, a, as a really long period in which this funeral cortege sort of went from one end of Spain to the other and um, with this woman weeping over the body of her husband whom she constantly wanted to 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 open the coffin and look at him and all the rest of it. So that kind of necrophiliac aspect of the madness. And in fact, there was nothing a bit, there was nothing at all uh, like that. But I dare say we'll come to that later. I wonder if we could start talking about Juana's life by talking a bit about her background and her upbringing. I mean, what was the, the, the context of her, uh, of her life and uh, how was it that she came to become the ruler of Castile? Because as you explained in the book, that was not necessarily something that was anticipated uh, when she was uh, born or when she was being raised. Certainly not. Um, she was uh, born in Toledo in November of 1479. She was the third child and the second daughter of the Catholic kings, as they became called after a papal brief in 1494. Um, Isabel I of Castile and Fernando II of Aragon. She had an elder sister, Isabel, who was about nine years older than her. She'd been born in 1470. Um, she, had one she had one brother, Juan, who was born in 1478. Maria in 1483, and Catalina, who later became known as Catherine of Aragon, strictly speaking, Catherine of Castile and Aragon, in 1485. Um, so she and the rest of her siblings had a very, very good education, a much better education than probably either of her parents. Um, they were taught Latin, which they could speak fluently. 
they uh, read, they they were in, they became in, they were interested in literature. They um, they had in general a very good um, education. They were uh, the, children, the daughters particularly were taught. They received the princely mirrors or the mirrors of princes, which taught them obedience to uh, filial obedience and obedience to to a husband. Um, and they were just generally known as extremely well educated. But I, I was struck by the fact that you know they weren't necessarily being raised to rule, and it's especially interesting considering that they were the daughters. That she was the daughter of a ruling queen in, in the form of Isabella, or as, as she's known in in, in so many places, Isabella of, of, of Castile. So it was. Uh, could you maybe uh, what exactly was she being prepared for? She was being she was being um, brought up uh, with the rest of her, her her sisters to shine in a foreign court. Um, they were all destined for dynastic marriages, which were designed to form a sort of protective circle around and against France, so that um, the eldest child, Isabel, was destined to uh, to marry into the Portuguese royal house, um, and her younger sister Maria also married into Portugal later. Um, Juan and Juana, who were the closest in age, um, Juan, of course, being the only brother, was uh, they were destined to to marry, as it were, into the Holy Roman Empire. Juan was going to marry Margaret. Um, the daughter of, of of Philip, Count of Flanders, Duke of Burgundy, um, who was the the son of Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor, and um, Juana was destined to marry Philip. So they were trained in in they were trained as to to shine as it were in foreign courts they were trained in music and dance in but also as i say in literature and uh, they would so that none of them were really i think that the idea was that juan would 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 survive juan was not ever in particularly good health but it was seemed that it was impossible that that, that juan would die god wouldn't just let him he would become the king of Spain, of, of the united Spain, because, of course, at that time, Spain wasn't united. It was divided into the kingdoms of um, many kingdoms, but mainly the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon. Juana marries Philip. And, 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 I, and I, uh, you talk about this marriage, and, and you, uh, uh, you, you look at this marriage, and you point out some, that there's a lot about the marriage that, obviously, we cannot understand. But you do point out that it... There's a lot of evidence to suggest that, in many ways, it was uh, successful at the start. Yes, uh, it it was successful. Um, Juana was seen as the consort of Philip. Um, she they shared much in common, um, and she was highly she was highly intelligent. She loved music, as did Philip. Um, she was they were both attractive young people who seemed to get on extremely well and did in a way get on of course politics divided them in the end and in fact quite shortly after they got married um but probably if if the whole thing about the succession of deaths hadn't taken place which then put juana in the front of the queue as it were to become the next sovereign of castile 
um, they probably would have gone on as, as a very well-married couple. Because although people talk about Juana's jealousy, like extreme jealousy of Philip's other lovers, I think it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't, most of the time I think she'd probably overlooked that, um, as, as most people did. So you talked about how politics interfered, and especially with regard to the secession issue in uh, Spain. I was wondering if you could explain a bit how it was that Juana uh, jumped to the front of the queue and what it was that, that the, the immediate uh, political uh, crisis that developed that disrupted her marriage with Philip. Um, she was the, as I say, she was the third child and the second daughter of the Catholic monarchs. Um, Juan, Prince Juan was, uh, was destined to govern uh, after the death of Isabel, um, but he died uh, shortly after he married Margaret, and, uh, who was Philip's sister. And the succession then passed to the eldest daughter, who had actually been the um, Princess of Astorius, which is the title, the Prince and Princess of Astorius, the titles given to um, the heirs to Castile. And Isabel then became, again, as she had been before the birth of Juan, the Princess of Astorius. And she was at that time married to Manuel I of, of Portugal. So they came to Spain, they came to Castile, and, 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 and subsequently to, they went to Aragon to, um, to take possession, to, uh, to be recognised as the princes and ultimately the, 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 the monarchs of, of Castile and Aragon. But Isabel died in childbirth and her son Manuel um, was, her son was very, was, was very weak, was a weak, uh, was, was not in good health. Um, and after he died, um, uh, that then Juana inherited. But it was never foreseen that she would do that. The, the, the succession of deaths, it was never foreseen. I should add that um, Margaret had um, had a stillborn child, I think. Um, anyway, he or, or a son or a daughter. But um, that, that was stillborn. And so... Um, the succession eventually came to Juana, but it wasn't foreseen. The prospect of his wife becoming Queen of Castile must have led to some mixed emotions for Philip. Why would it? What would it have meant to him, and how did he respond to the prospect of his wife becoming queen? The idea of inheriting Castile and, and ultimately Aragon, but certainly Castile, which was by far the richer of, of the two kingdoms, was um, immensely attractive to him. Um, and um, it meant he could step out partially from the shadow of France, um, under which he was, you know, as as as, uh, as uh, Duke of Burgundy, and as um, as Archduke of Austria. Um, and it meant the it meant receiving the lucrative. It was a very lucrative. Um, I mean, Castile was at that time a very wealthy kingdom. And so it, it meant untold riches for him as far as he was concerned, and that is how he saw it. And he was egged on by a lot of ambitious um, advisers. And um, um, so he was very keen to, um, to inherit the title, but he wasn't anxious, but because it meant going to Castile he, uh, and staying there for a while at least to learn the customs and so forth, which is at least what they wanted him to do. He was anxious 
as soon as he'd taken, had received the title of prince, which he had to do at the Cortes of Castile in Toledo and then in Saragossa, he was very keen to go back to his own country. And so he, he wanted the, the riches and the, and the prestige, but he wasn't so keen on actually the, the nitty-gritty of ruling the place. And that brought him up against, um, of course, against his wife. who And also, I mean, Juana had a superior position in, in Castile to him because she had become the princess of Asturias. And, um, and her position was superior to him, and he wouldn't ever really accept that. How did Juana's changing status affect her relationship with her husband? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, uh, he went back to... Um, to he went back to the Low Countries very shortly after having been sworn in as Prince of Castile and, and, and Aragon, leaving Juana pregnant in Castile. And But I think, it, well, obviously her parents hoped that she would stay in Castile. Uh, Isabel was not, her mother, Isabel I of Castile, was not in good health at the time. And um, they, would ha- they hoped that she, they would be able to hang on to her as the heir um, and and virtually um, dispense with Philip, as it were, if possible. But Juana was not happy to do that. She uh, she wanted to go back. She wanted to rejoin Philip in the Low Countries, um, and which is what she did after she gave birth to um, the, the child who had become Ferdinand, who was her fourth child. And so she agreed to leave Ferdinand in Castile, and she went back to the Low Countries to rejoin Philip. But once she'd gone back to the Low Countries, um, uh, bitter arguments broke out between her and her husband over the future of the, of, of the kingdoms and what would happen. And so she, the idea that she just abandoned Castile in order to rejoin Philip isn't strictly true, because she then became very much the defender of her of Isabel and, and, and after Isabel's death of her, of her father. And this, of course, provoked the most bitter arguments between the couple. What was the basis of these arguments? Was it because of a tension between Juana's potential responsibilities as queen and her duties towards Philip as his wife? Yes, and there was this uh, intrinsic, uh, there was this conflict. She'd been brought up to obey her husband as all women of her uh, of, of the time were um, no one had foreseen that she would inherit the thrones of Castile and, and eventually of Aragon and um, this posed problems that no one had had foreseen and so she was absolutely split but she decided politically she um, she her, her duty her she, her obligations were to her parents and um, and there was nothing that Philip could do to change her in that respect. She was immensely, she was born with great, like her mother, with great tenacity and willpower. And she refused to, um, to, to, to which sometimes she later regretted. She um, refused to give in to Philip and um, take his side. I mean, Fernando was very ambitious when, I mean, and perhaps I'm jumping the gun here, but when Isabel died, Fernando was determined to retain power in Castile. And, Fena, and and Juana believed that, that he had the right to do so. Yeah, this wasn't just an issue between Juana and her husband, was it? 
As you explain, Fernando also wanted to control the wealth of Castile after Isabel's death. How did he contest the authority that his wife had invested in Juana? Well, Fernando, um, yes, Fernando, um, um, the will, uh, Isabel's will, um, she died in, 15, in November 1504, and she left um, Castile to, um, to Juana, but she provided that if Juana did not wish or was unable to govern, um, was not in the country, and of course at that time she was not, um, then Fernando should do so on her behalf until the son of Philip and Charles came of age. Now, um, Fernando, it isn't clear what uh, Isabel really meant when she provided that if Juana, for Juana, if she didn't wish or was unable to govern. Um, but it was interpreted by Fernando and by Fernando's supporters as meaning that Isabel had, in effect, not granted him the kingdom conditionally, but absolutely, and um, that, 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 that it was his to rule virtually in perpetuity. And so um, after the death of Isabel, the Cortes, a Cortes was, convened, was convoked um, at Toro, in which Fernando, and it was engineered in such a way that most of the support was for Fernando. And although some of the procurators, or as we would call them, deputies, expressed some reservations um, about Fernando doing this, um, and many of the nobility stayed away altogether because they, just, they were not very happy with an Aragonese king taking over. Um, it was virtually uh, accepted that Fernando would govern uh, forever and, and uh, well, for as long as he lived. And this, of course, was, uh, was, was not uh, at all to Philip's taste. And he decided that he would come to Castile and take Juana with him and reclaim and claim back the throne. While Philip brought Juana with him, he denied her autonomy, even to the point of essentially imprisoning her. As you write, the only way she could have fight back against this was by isolating herself, which fed into the claims of her instability. Yes, that's right. I mean, she, in, in, a, in a way, uh, you can say that there were two, uh, two forms of imprisonment. Juana herself had imposed a, a sort of seclusion on herself because she refused to accept the women whom, um, especially, well, after she became Princess of Asturias, she refused to accept the women that Philip had, um, had, had chosen to surround her with. And this has usually been interpreted as, as, as because of her own jealousy of these women. Um, but there was a political jealousy there as well. She believed that she had the right to choose which women uh, she would surround herself with. She was the princess of Asturias. She had that right. Um, and to do, as, uh, to do as her mother had done. But Philip did not accept that, and she was, of course, in a foreign court, which made it very difficult for her to impose her will. So her solution to that was to really seclude herself and not cooperate with Philip in any way politically. Um, and then, of course, there was the wider imprisonment that surrounded her, especially after um, she took advantage of, 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 of um, a trip that Philip made to, to, to Gelders, to, away from away from the Low Countries, to write to, to Fernando, to, um, to, to, um, to, well, not exactly to offer him the throne, but to, to, 
to agree to his governorship for as long as he wished to remain in Castile. I mean, she obviously retained the crown, so she didn't actually abdicate, but she decided at that she decided at that point that as the wife of Philip, she couldn't govern in Castile, and she therefore wanted her husband to do it. This, uh, her father to do it, sorry. Um, this letter was discovered, it was taken to Philip, it was torn up, and she was then, um, um, she was then in prison, surrounded by our guards with crossbows and so forth. One is authority is restricted at this point with even her efforts to assert her power by controlling access to herself used as fodder by Philip for his ends. Doesn't he try to exploit one's effort to isolate herself by using it as evidence of her supposed madness? The whole um, question of madness is, 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 a, is a highly political one in the case of Juana. Um, her husband was willing to describe her as mad if he thought that that meant that he would that he could persuade people that he was the right person to take to take the throne and to carry out all the decisions. Um, but um, as he, he he later changed his mind. He 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 later portrayed her as not mad because that's of course if you're talking about somebody who really is mad, that it's going to be very difficult for them to take the throne, even for him to take the throne on her behalf. He describes her as instead he changes that and says that she's um, just a, she's just a malicious she's mal- that everything comes from her malice, um, and so but she this her passions her passions whether they're mad passions or whether they're obsessions um, of some sort or another that she's not fit to rule um, and this for some reason, um, is something that has gone down in, in, in history. And, um, yeah. It wasn't just Philip that Juana was contesting for power, though, as her father Fernando was involved as well. What role did he play in all this? Um, Juana, it, it, it's really, it's not, um, I mean, it's often this, uh, this period in Castilian history has often been portrayed as a, a duel between um, the Philip and Fernando, but of course it was a three-way process. Um, and um, they, 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 the, the, his so-called hysteric passions and uh, illnesses of Juana were used by both Philip and Fernando to marginalise Juana from events. Um, and as I say, I mean, as, as a woman in a world where women were often secluded, whether at home or in monasteries, it was easier to imprison one than it would have been to imprison Juan, uh, Juan her, as her brother. But um, so there's very much a gendered context here. But um, um, it, it's it can never. It was very, Juan was nevertheless very much in contention during this time because of her support for. For, for Fernando, and um, she took every opportunity, she didn't have many opportunities to do so, but to express her loyalty to Fernando. Um, and so um, they then, uh, Juana and Philip, travelled to, to Castile to take a possession of Castile, um, um, and while this was happening, of course, Philip was very anxious that to marginalise Juana as far as he could, because he was very well aware of her position. Um, but 
there was a lot of contention among the nobility. It was it, it became clear that uh, that Juana was uh, was was not entirely in agreement with with Philip over the government of of Castile, and um, a third party. Um, not shortly after they arrived in Castile, a third party, as it were, in inverted commas, arose, putting. Juana forward as or claiming that Juana was the, the legitimate queen, which of course she was, and um, supporting her against both Fernando and Philip. That in that was in a sense what brought them together against her, against Juana. And at the in the, there was a, a treaty was signed in the in, in, in June fifteen oh six, in which between Philip and Fernando, in which Juana was completely marginalised on account of her passion, as it says, um, and and that if she ever tried to, in the unlikely event that she would try to govern Castile either alone or with others, and of course this was a tacit reference to the party that was forming around her, um, that she would ruin the kingdom if she were allowed to govern and they would combine together to prevent that happening. It's an extraordinary Treaty, which, when it came to the attention of the French king, completely surprised him, as it astonished him, in fact. And um, uh, Fernando, realising that it was preposterous, very quickly um, signed a secret uh, document um, withdrawing his agreement to it. Um, but that brings us to the Cortes of Toledo of 1506, when, in fact, Juana managed... By, partly by, by guile, to um, meet with the procurators, the deputies at the, to, to the um, Cortes, and to proclaim herself the queen, the, the rightful queen, and to ask for their support, which they did do after a great number, a great deal of, uh, of, of, of negotiations and arguments. Though she was acknowledged as queen, she was still fighting attempts to limit her ability to rule, wasn't she? That's right. Um, she avoided the plan to imprison her in the summer of 1506. She managed to ensure, with the help of some powerful nobles, that her right to rule as proprietary queen, um, that, that she had the right to, to, to rule as proprietary queen. This was sanctioned by the Cortes of Valladolid on the 12th of July. Um, and later, although this again might be jumping the gun a bit, she managed to block a new Cortes that winter that could have overturned the decisions of the previous Cortes to her detriment. You explained how Juana came to the throne as a result of the early deaths of her mother, her brother, and her elder sister. Philip himself, though, wasn't in the best of health either because he dies in 1506. You mentioned earlier that Juana's response to Philip's death becomes a part of her argument for limiting her authority. How did her opponents try to exploit the situation in order to do this? Well, um... It was normal for people, uh, for rulers, um, you can see this later with Charles, um, to, after the death of a spouse, to, to retire and to, um, to retire and to, uh, you have to go through the mourning rites, which is what she did. But she was, at the same time, this was complicated by the, so she wasn't actually ruling after Philip died. And, um, uh, a sort of a, a group of of nobles, which were partly of Fleming and Burgundians, partly of Castilians, and under the presidency of the uh, of the Archbishop of Toledo, Francisco Jiménez de Cisneros, who had the primacy of Castile, 
um, they they uh, set up a sort of illegal, as it were, really, because there was no real sanction for it. But in the circumstances, that is what they did. And as soon as Philip died, they set up this um, this kind of illegal uh, administration and and laid down for three months. Um, what they would call another, they would summon another Cortes, and um, that Juana would, for three months, be uh, marginalised from from power. Um, so they tried to, um, they didn't, they, they tried to convoke this Cortes, but but of course a Cortes in law could only really be convoked by the monarch. So they, they failing after they'd failed to persuade Juana to call another Cortes because she was the rightful monarch and she had no reason to call another Cortes. Philip hadn't been the, the rightful monarch. He was not exactly the court, uh, the consort, but he didn't have consorts at the time, but he was the sort of king by marriage. And she was the one who had the all-important role. She refused to convoke a new Cortes. So they then illegally tried to, through the Royal Council, which was the main governing body of Castile, um, tried to convoke a Cortes saying that the interests of the kingdom didn't, didn't Juana wasn't interested in govern, governing, that um, they needed to convoke a new Cortes to decide how Castile would be governed in future. Um, this didn't happen, this didn't work, because there were too many people who believed that, that Juana um, quite right, rightly was in mourning, but she might at some point wish to govern, and that until she wished to govern, um, they should, no Cortes should be convoked. So there was a lot of uh, argument about that. The three-month period expired, and at that very moment, Juana issued from mourning to um, pass some quite striking laws which um, struck down all Philip's acts of government, basically. Um, she rescinded all his grants and um, Mercedes that, she, that, she, that, that he had um, distributed. Um, um, it led to the, um, in short, it led to the expulsion, or they didn't, not exactly the expulsion, but to the, um, uh, many of the Burgundians and nobles then left Castile and um, um, Juana then uh, decided that she was going to leave Burgos and take Philip's body to Granada, which is what, in his will, he, he had wanted her to do. Only as you've mentioned, her opponents turned that procession into another example of her supposed madness. What made the procession so dangerous to them? Yes, um, it, this was the funeral cortege, the famous funeral cortege, um, which she led out of Burgos in the winter, it was a quite warm winter, actually, but it was a war- the winter of 1506. Now, she uh, was ultimately destined to, well, she wanted to get to Granada. Uh, the problem with, uh, with that was that Granada was, was, was um, in the hands of southern nobility who were very much opposed for a number of different reasons to Fernando, the, the reign of the King of Aragon. And um, they were great supporters of, of Juana. So if she'd managed to get to Granada and bury Philip's body there, which is what she wanted to do, she would have, could have been assured of a, of a great deal of support for her as queen. She didn't manage to get there because she had to stop in Torquemada, which wasn't very far. This is why the myth of the funeral cortege is, is crazy. It, it is a, in a way, it's a crazy myth rather than 
you know, Juana being crazy because it, it, it people represent that, and serious historians have done this, have have described the cortege as as, as going through the mountains of Granada and, uh, you know, going on a perpetual journey, as it were, through Castile. In fact, she stopped very only a few days outside um, Burgos, where she had to stop because she was heavily pregnant with her last child, who became later the Queen of Portugal. Um, and there, she, um, after she uh, had come out of that period of 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 uh, of, of um, the, the period of um, you know you had you had to stay the quarantine is what I, the word I'm looking for. After she came out of that period of quarantine, she did proceed to um, to continue to act as queen. Now you can argue as to uh, to how effective she was, but she actually was taking actions. She left Torquemada. She went to a place called Ornios, which is only a short distance across the the, the moorland, and there she insisted, which she tried to do before, in fact, but hadn't succeeded when she was in Burgos. But when she was in this very small place in the middle of virtually nowhere, um, she managed to. Um, Changed the composition. She ordered the co- a, a change in the composition of the royal council, so that they were um, the, the councillors who took over were not Philip's appointees, but purely loyal to her, or that's what she hoped, and loyal to her father. And these then continued. These then sort of tr- actually stopped Castile falling apart, which it might well have done if that hadn't happened. And although she had irregular contacts with the council, um, they were probably irregular. She nevertheless had them. And, uh, you, you know, the, the royal council can take a lot of credit for, for governing at that point rather than to Kisneros, more or less given up at that point. Um, um, but she too, in conjunction with the council, was governing. It was only for a period of a few months, but it nevertheless was governing. She also called uh, the Infante Ferdinand out of... Um, by Adelaide, where he'd been held, where he'd been kept for safety, um, to her side. So that was also seen as a as um, a form of, of, of saying, I'm going to govern from now on. But of course, at that point is the point where Fernando decides it's high time he came back from Naples, where he'd gone after he was ousted from Castile by Philip. But when Fernando returns from Naples, he rather ungratefully sets out to undermine her authority, doesn't he? Yes, that's right. Um, he he um, he he proclaims and makes it clear to to everybody that Juana isn't really interested in governing, um, but he was always the natural ruler of, of Castile, and that he was going to um, to to do so in the future. Um, he actually. Uh, was very. I mean, he was in very way, many ways a very lucky king. Um, the, the the Italian the Florentine chronicler Guicciardini always says how fortunate he was. Um, he was fortunate in that Juana had prepared the ground for him. In fact, by preparing these laws which revoked Philip's all Philip's um, acts of government, and um, creating a climate in which it was uh, favourable to his return, so that. When uh, the, these laws had been put on ice pending his return, um, because it was thought that at the time, I, n- nobody knows why exactly they were put on ice at the time, but it was thought perhaps that um, 
Juana didn't have the military muscle behind her to implement them, and they would have been they were very highly controversial. When Fernando comes back, he comes back with a huge army, and he manages to 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 pass these laws, or to they're already there, and he puts them into effect. Um, he conquers the last remaining strong Flemish strongholds in Castile. Yes, there are about five stages that can broadly be distinguished. There was the effective transfer of the Royal Council's allegiance to Fernando, the removal of key Castilian members of the Queen's household and their dismissal or absorption into Fernando's entourage, um, the rejection of marriage suitors. Now, uh, this was fairly easy for Fernando to do because Philip's body hadn't yet been properly buried. I mean, it was an embalmed body, but it, it had been um, taken somewhere and put in some vault. But it, it wasn't finally buried, as it were. Um, so he argued that, that, in fact, he argued that Juana didn't want to bury the body, and this was a, is another part of the myth. Um, what he really... What really was the case was that he was not going to let her take the body to Granada because Granada was, was once she was in Granada, when she was surrounded by, by nobles who were loyal to her rather than to him, um, it was just, you know, it was just too risky from his point of view. He wouldn't, it was less likely that he would have been able to hold on to the, the, the crown of Castile if, if she'd managed to get to Granada. So, um, um, then he, he, uh, Henry the Second, Henry the Seventh of England was one of was her most important suitor. He wanted to marry her. He'd met her earlier on on the voyage to to um, Castile, um, and um, his own wife had had died some time before. So he made a serious offer for her hand, which Fernando rejected on her behalf. She was more, more or less marginalised um, in a place called Argos at that time because she refused to go back into Burgos where Philip had died and it would have made a mockery of the funeral cortege that, that she'd led out of Burgos in the first place. Um, she, he then, uh, the next step was that he removed the Infante Ferdinand from his mother's guardianship um, and so that he had control of the Infante, which was very important. People would see that he was in charge of, this, of one of the possible successes to Castile. And um, finally, she was imprisoned at Tordesillas, which is um, a town halfway between Burgos and Valladolid. How does Fernando justify the treatment of the ruling queen of Castile? He, he never says that she, uh, he never uh, would admit to her having been imprisoned. And even today, there are people who say that she retired of her own volition to mourn over the body of her husband, um, which is what Castilian widows often did. They went into seclusion, and so it made it um, fairly, you could say that it was, in a way, quite normal, seen as quite normal procedure for widows to, to retire from active political life. And Fernando always claimed, um, and as, as did later Charles, that this is what she'd always wanted to do. Um, and um, some historians that would still maintain this, but the evidence seems to me to point in, in another direction. She never really, she was never satisfied with, with um, she, she always believed she was the rightful queen and she never wanted to be marginalized from power. Fernando himself is getting up there in years though. 
Yet when he dies in 1516, her son Charles immediately acts to take his place both as King of Aragon and as her captor. How is he able to pull this off? Oh, this is one of the most extraordinary aspects of the story of Juana. He was never told that Fernando had died. Um, the fear was that if she was told that he died, um, she would reclaim the throne and there would be plenty of people around who were anxious to support her, as later was quite clear when the Comunero uprising took place. So um, she was um, at that time imprisoned in Torres. She was in I th- she was imprisoned. I mean, some people say she had retired there, but she was, to all intents and purposes, imprisoned there. She was surrounded by a tight knot of Aragonese servants who were loyal to Fernando, and they were under strict orders um, that she should not be told about Fernando's death. At that time, Fisneros had returned to power. It's sometimes called the um, Second Cisneros Regency, which uh, implies that there was never a Juana reign, which is a whole other subject that one could get into. Um, anyway, she was never told about his death. And the, the extraordinary thing is that when Charles, and this is often forgotten, when Charles actually came to Castile to claim the throne, he had to, and he and his uh, advisors, Chevre being um, the most important, had to maintain the fiction that Fernando was alive somewhere, was but busy somewhere in Malaga or somewhere like that, um, and um, uh, that that this narrow, that all Charles wanted to do was to, uh, and he never he didn't tell. Uh, I mean, this is the seri- This is the beginning of a whole series of lies. And, um, she she was placed in this kind of theatre of illusion and deception. Um, that Charles had just come to to help her with the kingdoms, to help Fernando govern, and he was going to be kind of apprentice and learn at her side and learn at Fernando's side, and 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 would she give her approval to that? Now we don't know whether to what extent she gave her approval to it because we're never told, but um, one <clears throat> one assumes that she might have said, "Well, that sounds quite reasonable to me." But in fact, she'd never, she, you know, she remained proprietary monarch. She was, but she was a monarch who had no idea that her father had died. And therefore, she wasn't in a position to, to claim, to say, look, you know, release me from this place. Um, they, they, they maintained this fiction that Fernando uh, was still alive. Um, so that meant that there was a lot, that they, they just couldn't tell her a lot of things that were going on. So she probably wasn't even aware in 1518, a new Cortes was 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 convoked um, at Valladolid, at which um, um, Charles was uh, accepted as king of Castile, um, as uh, as long as Juana remained in ill health, as they put it. Um, but that Juana remained the, the only proprietary monarch. She was the only. He was, as a sense, in a sense, only the guardian king, and um, that even that kingship would be removed from him once Juana uh, recovered her health, which was, of course, um, um, uh, an extra incentive for Charles uh, that, that she should not recover her health. I don't think there was any sign that he ever was interested in her doing so. What does this about Juana's relationship with her son? 
It um, it was I I there's very very few details about her relationship with her son. Um, she had of course not seen him for many many years. When she'd left Castile, um, he was only a small child, and she hadn't seen him since. And um, when he he came back to Cast when he came when he came to Castile, he was a rather sort of awkward, quiet um, young man of, of of about seventeen, surrounded by his own ad- advisors, Flemish and Burgundian advisors. And um, I one can only imagine that the relationship between them was rather stilted, and that um, most of the conversation she had with his advisors, rather than with Charles himself. Um, he it then became um, very quickly got uh, quite um, one suspects that the relationship cooled very quickly because um, he was uh, Charles was anxious to um, he, he when he was at Tordesillas um, he saw he had the chance to see the the last daughter, uh, the last child of, of Juana who was Catalina the youngest child who was living with with Juana at the time. And she was, um, by that time, I think about 11 or 12. And um, he was quite keen to take her away from there, um, take her away from her her mother's side, and to use her in future marriage negotiations. So um, he managed to um, smuggle her out of Tordesillas without Juana knowing. But when Juana found out that this had happened, she went completely you know, she 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 just refused to eat and drink, which was what happened whenever her will was crossed. And so Catalina had to be returned to Tordesillas, and Charles was not very happy about it. Um, but and he used that as a, as a as an excuse to then surround her with his own people, um, who had also been loyal to Fernando, some of them, and. Um, um, and make sure that she was she would never leave the palace until that time she'd been able to travel to go out of the palace every now and again and visit um, the nearby convent of Santa Clara, which um, she often did. Um, so she she became more strictly confined, um, whereas the conditions of her daughter became rather better. Juana's in a, in, a, in a sense became worse, and her relations with the Marquis of Denia, who were, was appointed to take charge of her, were um, were highly um, were very stormy. One might say they they used to argue for hours. Um, you know that she 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 said you know she argued that she was still the queen. She had the right to do this and that, and he would of course take Charles's view. Um, that is not the case, and so so um, there were very it was a very poisonous atmosphere that developed in Tordesillas then. Even more so than so, had been before. No, what I was going to ask was uh, the point I was going to make, and, and if this is repetitive, uh, we, we can skip it, and move on. But it, it's it, it's how again what we're seeing is the degree to which the uh, issue of her mental state is being used to justify what could be regarded as uh, extra legal or. Uh, uh, means of depriving her of her rightful authority, and 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 how this play, and how this is important, not just in terms of what's happening at that time, and 
the 15 teens. But of course, when you're talking about the uh, the uh, justification uh, subsequently, uh, once she uh, has been confined and when she passed away, that to acknowledge that that was wrong, to acknowledge that she might have been saved, would in effect render all of that, uh, all those actions uh, uh, wrong. Well, that's right. I mean, um, um, the, the whole foundation of the power of Fernando and subsequently of Charles was based on Juana's um, illnesses, as, as, as you might say. They, that you know, she was ill. She was not. Uh, she, and it, it's possible that she had suffered from erratic moods and all that kind of thing. But uh, the the, the uh, whole theme of illness was was em- always emphasised. Um, and and that's c- coupled with the fact that widows were often secluded in retirement from life um, enabled her menfolk to maintain that fiction that she was just, um, um, ha- well, I don't know, happily, but sort of um, she was just um, in seclusion. How did that play out for the remaining three or so decades of her life? Because she uh, lives into the 1550s. Yes, she does. Well, of course... Um, um after Charles went to uh, Charles uh, you know to just very quickly um after receiving the consent of the the however reluctant of the Cortes of Valladolid to his kingship he then went to Aragon to Saragossa where um and and later to Barcelona to uh to be acknowledged and recognized there as as king uh, had a lot of difficulty there and while he was in Barcelona heard that uh, Maximilian had died. Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, then died. So to cut a long story short, Charles was voted in, partly as a result of being having been vote, uh, voted in as King of Castile. Um, that gave him greater ability to claim the, 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 um, the, the to be, as a candidate to the, the Holy Roman Empire. So he became Holy Roman Emperor. He then left Castile to to um, to go to to Aachen to be accepted as as, as emperor, and uh, while he was away, uh, as it were, all hell broke loose in Castile. Um, the Comunero uprising, with the Comunero uprising, and um, the, the the Comuneros who came to Tordesillas to to meet the queen and to ask her to uh, to take over the. To, to, to act as queen, to travel the country, and, and so forth. Um, and um, but the problem with that um, was that, um, and and I think this is often seen as um, the fact that this didn't happen, and that Juana didn't really cooperate with with the Comuneros, um, who she 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 didn't really cooperate with them. Either because she was trying to support the interests of her son, or because she just didn't uh, wasn't mentally able to do so. Um, this is not strictly true. The fact is that um, Juana and the Comuneros fell out because they also refused to really give her the freedom they said that they were giving her. Uh, they didn't really obey her orders. They obeyed their own orders. They did their own thing. Um, she, for example was very keen that the Royal Council, which she'd worked with in the past during that very brief time when she had been effective queen in 1506, 1507, uh, she wanted to to, to meet with the Royal Council, to meet the Royal Councillors, to talk to them, to act in conjunction with them. 
But the Comuneros believed that the Royal Council were, in a way, the work of the devil, the spawn of the devil. They believed that they were the, the source of all the evils of Castile, and um, they wouldn't allow her to meet with the Royal Council. So there were lots of things that the Queen, the queen wanted, demanded that they do, and they didn't do. So their, their relationship was doomed to failure, basically. And then, of course, um, when Charles came back, I mean, this is cutting everything very short, um, but um, the Battle of Villalar in 1521, uh, the Comuneros were defeated, and then with the uh, finally with the downfall of Toledo in 1522, where um, the widow of Juan de Padilla, the Comunero leader, had been leading a sort of rearguard action against um, against Charles, um, that collapsed, and then Charles came back and and um, took over the. Um, the throne again. Did was there ever a another opportunity that Juana had to reassert her authority as Regna Queen after that? She never had. Uh, she never had not, another opportunity to do so. Um, in, in, in a way, you could say that the conflict continued between the Queen and her entourage, and um, by extension, the members of her family. Um, but it was more in, internalized within Tordesillas than in the country as a whole. Um, the, the, the problem was that she, until her death in a long time later, in 1555, remained the proprietary monarch. She, she never abdicated and was never um, dethroned, so that she was always the proprietary monarch, so that Charles didn't have the right to dispose of the territories of Castile and Aragon as he would have wished to do. And that included the Kingdom of Naples, which he wanted to give to, to Philip. And uh, um, th th there were lots of problems still arising out of the fact that she was still uh, the proprietary queen. It also caused dynastic conflict between Charles and his younger brother, Ferdinand, who by that time um, was, was uh, in, in Austria, um, and uh, Fed, Ferdinand's view was that, um, that, 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 that he would not, he, he, he always insisted that the Spanish patrimony was really his. And so until Charles' death, um, that problem was never really resolved. So the, the figure of, of, of the Queen, although she wasn't acting directly uh, at this point, continued to be a source of great conflict and, um, and questions about legitimacy. Did she ever have any ability to assert herself into those conversations, or did Charles effectively ensure? Um, we we don't we don't know that. I mean, she did. Um, she 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 was visited by various. I mean, Charles was always traveling around Europe trying to keep it together, and against involved in his embroiled in his constant wars with France, which drained Castilian resources, and. Um, during that time, Castile was ruled by a series of regents, in inverted commas, because obviously the reigning, Juana was still in, in technically the reigning queen. Um, and with some of those, um, with Ferdinand's son Maximilian, for example, and Maria, who governed Castile for a while, she, that, that there was, I, I, we don't know to what extent, what, you know, how far those conversations went. But um, I think there was some feeling within the family that Juana, uh, you know, had not been treated as perhaps she, she, she should have been. And it was a source of uh, 
internal disquiet within the family. But uh, Juana herself um, was never really able to, she, I mean, she was never able to leave a will, although she, she, she tried to do so in, in some kind of small way. Um, and that was very important at a time when wills were spiritual documents as well as, um, as, well as political ones. So that the whole question of her um, salvation, as it were, uh, remained a very um, sort of subject of, 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 of uh, bitter um, reflection within the family. And they were struggling constantly to get her to um, repent her sins, for example. But what did that mean? If she was indeed mad or ill, um, did that not mean she was innocent? But the fact that they were so concerned about it shows that really the family didn't feel that she was as ill as all that. Um, otherwise, she wouldn't have needed to repent her sins. So there's a whole, um, so that, that there, were, there were like two decades of, of, of struggle over this. And um, Juana never felt able to repent her sins. I don't, we, we can, that's a whole other subject that there really isn't time to discuss now. But, um, you know, that the, the struggles went on within the palace one way or another. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, um, I'm not, uh, I've, I'm working or have been working for a little while on, um, it, 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 it's still uh, connected with Juana, but it's um, looking at the three months that she spent with Philip in England, her, the relations between uh, them and Henry VII, um, and what, what uh, they, were, they were not exactly shipwrecked, but the, they were grounded uh, on, on the English coast. And um, it was a, a strange three, a strange sort of interregnums where, um, where Juana was traveling in some places, Philip in another. So I just wanted to look, um, it's, it's not a subject that's been really dealt with very much. And I would like to sort of, um, to, to re- do more research into that. Oh, it sounds like a fascinating subject. I look forward to reading about it. Yes, it is quite a fascinating subject. It actually is, yeah. Gillian, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, and you. Thank you very much indeed. Indeed.